I felt like going to the ED is like the worst first date you've ever been on. Well, again, we're here with the folks at UCLA Harborview and we're excited to be here. And we wanted to talk about a topic that's been on my mind a lot lately. And it's a pre-pandemic problem, but got worse during the pandemic. It's a personal story. And it was, let's rewind back a little bit. It's COVID. COVID is finishing in Florida. They got rid of mask mandates really early in my state. And then shortly after the hospital got rid of mask mandates. And so I remember taking care of a patient with a resident and it was a red. So it was somebody that came in and extremis in cardiac arrest or close to cardiac arrest. And we were just kind of going through the motions with this patient and we got the call from EMS. And then we really started having a very scientific conversation about the patient. It was a mid forties female came in with a low blood pressure. And we made some assumptions early because of our patient population. And it was the middle of the night and EMS kind of said, oh, the house was dirty. And so we really just kind of started talking about this patient in at length about what we thought was going on without really doing a full physical and out getting a history. And we were talking about the patient kind of in a third person. And then about a minute into this, the patient screams, hey, I can hear everything you're saying. And then we go up and evaluate the patient and realize they really weren't there for what we had all assumed it was, which was either drug use or a, a poorly managed chronic medical problem. They were actually there because they had had a miscarriage and didn't seek medical care. And they had really bad dysfunctional uterine bleeding and they were anemic. And like they ended up having this really kind of terrible thing that we were all going to miss because we had anchored on early. But you have those moments as a, as a physician where you're doing what you think you should be doing and you have an aha moment like, oh crap, I just did something wrong. And it kind of took me back to we forgot that this person was a patient. We forgot that this person has feelings. That this person was awake. And it made me just really want to ask my co-host, Drew and Chris, uh, how did we get to this point where we've dehumanized patients this much in 2023? Because I imagine as I'm telling this story, we've all had a similar interaction where we kind of catch ourselves treating the patient too much like a robot with symptoms and less like a human. Or am I the only one that does this? So that's a great question. I submit that, and I'm going to err on this out of caution and err on, on optimism and think that I don't believe that as physicians, we collectively are dehumanizing our patients at a larger number. It's just more of a conversation. We are cognizant. There's more of a conversation of what am I doing? What are my residents doing? What am I teaching my residents just by my behavior? Because before this, it wasn't a part of conversation. If you had a patient that was X, Y, and Z or fit that X, Y, and Z box, we had X, Y, and Z conversation. And as time moved on, specifically after COVID, I feel that among many things, there's a silver lining on COVID on some aspects. And one of it is the appreciation of the things we never acknowledged before, like wellness and the relationship between everyone in your job and how I communicate with patients and how patients communicate with me and my behavior and how it is perceived by residents and students is now a part of conversation. So I, I think it's excellent that you brought this up. And I think that in this aspect of conversation, we're just having a conversation that we should have had seven years ago. And this is allowing us that space to move forward as a medical unit to do something better. So I'll give you something there, Chris, and I'm with you. I want to believe what you're saying in a lot of ways, but I, I think we dehumanize for several reasons, right? I think part of it is that we have to dehumanize to an extent. 
if I become emotionally attached to every critical patient I have, I don't think I could continue in this profession, which is not to say that I don't care and that I'm not empathetic and that I don't have emotions when I take care of patients, but I can't be in the situation that they're in and take care of them properly, but then also take care of the next patient, the next patient, the next patient, and make it home to take care of myself and my family and everything else. So I have to have some separation. Now that's not dehumanization, but mm -hmm. it's easy for those lines to blur. And then Andy, in the situation you're talking about, well, I wasn't a fly on the wall. I've been in resuscitations that you have been in before. And I know that you're not one to overtly or purposely dehumanize, but we have to have medical conversations too, right? So just because there's a presentation that looks like something, that doesn't mean that we want early closure and diagnostic bias on what we're doing. We need to have a conversation, particularly in a academic environment when there's learners about what could this be, mm -hmm. right? Because sometimes the what could it be is actually what it is. And sometimes the actual presentation of what it is, and it's just creating a differential, right? But in the really critical patients, you have to have that conversation. And sometimes our differential includes things that would be offensive to the patient, whether it is actually what they're experiencing or not. I mean, mm -hmm. I am not the only one I am sure on this conference who has had a patient with an overdose who initially says, I did not take or do anything only to be very clear that they actually admit an hour or two later as they begin to sober from whatever it was that they overdosed on to admit, oh yeah, you know, I actually did, right? And, and that's one example. And that's not me trying to dehumanize anything because I've actually think that I've found more empathy in the past couple of years. And I've tried to be really cognitive of the dehumanization that occurs, but I have to separate myself. And sometimes in the process of doing that and having the academic conversations that we have, dehumanization occurs unintentionally. That The point is we can't let it be intentional dehumanization. And then if it does cross that line, how do we make it clear to the patient that sometimes we have to talk shop and sometimes we have to talk directly to you? The example is, and then I'll stop talking for a second, is when a stroke alert is called in my emergency department. I imagine it's similar in a lot of places, right? There are a lot of conversations that happen that are around the patient, but not directly to the patient. And it appears as though we're talking above the patient in a lot of times, right? We're talking about scores that they don't understand. We're talking about exam findings they don't understand. We're talking about getting you know, a POC INR. Nobody who is not in medicine has any clue what that is. And so sometimes what we have to do to make it humanized is saying, hey, for the next two minutes, I'm going to talk to everyone else in this room and it's going to feel like I am completely ignoring you. But what I'm actually doing is everything I can to take care of you as quickly and as best as I possibly can. And once I get this ball rolling and you come back from the CT scanner, we're going to sit down and have a conversation. So I know this is scary. I know there's a lot going on, but trust me that this is in your best interest. And then I go on to have that conversation. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of components to it, but it's not just as easy as saying, oh, I'm just not going to dehumanize because we do it in so many ways and we don't even realize what we're doing. I love that you bring that up, Drew. And even now, as you've been talking, I thought about that scenario again to where as we tried to walk back with the patient, it was like we had the talk some shop and it was more just cognizant that like we needed to do it in the right place in the right time. So I guess the question is that, Chris, let's go back to you. How do you go out of your way to make sure that your learners don't dehumanize patients? And how has that maybe changed your interactions when you see patients, because I feel like sometimes as, as an attending, I get the chance to dehumanize the entire encounter because I'm not there maybe to do a full physical exam. I'm there to make sure that the resident got an accurate history and I get to sit down with the family and talk a little bit more about the positives of their visit 
versus the resident that's there to get a bunch of information, make some decisions, and then go put some orders in. So how, how do you go about doing that? I, I think that was a perfect segue when you stated, I sit down. It's the small things that the patients realize. No one will ever tell you or me or anyone that's listening that, hey, thank you, doctor. I love the way you interpreted that ABG and adjusted the peep for my mother. Nobody will ever, ever say that. They'll state, hey, I remember you made a pillow for my mother when she asked for a pillow and your hospital doesn't have any. That's what they will run with for the rest of their lives and their children will as well. So what we try to do is be deliberate in how we approach our patients that our residents and students see. That's how you honestly make the bigger difference. We have it as I nerd out, it's part of our sim. So what's really cool is to just have a patient and you just have five residents stand outside and have a patient that presents with some concern, like make a chest pain. They've got chest pain and they have a bag of Doritos in their hand and have one resident go in and interact with the patient while the patient's eating, then have another resident go in and you're just watching what they do in their behavior. You would be surprised at just how having a patient with a bag of chips, how they're perceived differently by four different people for the same thing. Like, oh, you've got chips, you're not sick. Oh, you've got chips, you are greedy. Oh, you've got chips. That bias comes in and it and that almost that delivery is seen. So what we try to do is make, make an effort and bring attention to the little things that we do. When you walk into the room, make sure that we, I will walk in the room and knock on the door and say, hey, how are you doing? I'm Dr. Colbert. Hey, do you mind if I sit down? And something like that reminds us of the delivery that we have, because realistically, you're 100% correct. I give my differential and we discuss differentials at the bedside sometimes, but I'll include the patient. I'll say, hey, we're going to talk shop real quick, and you're going to be a part of your health's conversation. That alone for the patient allows me to engage in exchange of conversation about health, about medicine, about this patient. So you kind of kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, and we have to script what we're doing. First of all, Chris, there is actually a Frito-Lay rule, which is that you cannot have a significant active acute process if you're eating a Frito-Lay product. And I've found that to have 99.5% sensitivity and specificity. So nothing's 100%. But no, but Chris, you make so many great points, which is so when we take care of patients, we just need to be at their level. And we can talk about all the customer service stuff in the world that you want. But truly, if you sit down and you're eye level with a patient and you're having a conversation with them, it's very, very difficult to dehumanize them. You know, one of my favorite things as an attending to do is to see the patient before the resident walks in. They walk in and I am just sitting there having a conversation with the patient. And then I present the patient to the resident that walked in and tell the patient, correct me if I get anything wrong. I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell this doc about you in front of you. Tell me how I did. What was it? And then that draws them into that conversation. And, you know, sometimes I'll just, if it's just me by myself, I'll kind of repeat, like, here's the things I was hearing. Here's my major, my major concerns about your story. Did I hit your highlights also? If there's not a resident coming in on, on the rare occasion that I actually take care of somebody by myself, I'm kidding. I take care of lots of people by myself, but you get, you get the point. You want to save 30 minutes on every single shift? Before you walk out of your patient's room, always ask, do you have any questions before I leave? Did I cover that, all your concerns? Is there anything that, else that to worry saves, about? That will save you 30 minutes on every single shift. And because even if they do have a question, they'll state, ooh, he did ask. Now I'll just wait till he comes back. Because if you don't ask that question, as soon as you walk out, oh, wait a minute, 
do you guys have any more Doritos outside or anything? Can I eat now? Can you FaceTime my aunt? Anything like that? I'll ask right there. You have any aunts I need to FaceTime? How's that pillow? Am I sitting down well? Boom. They're acknowledged and everything works well. I was wanted to bring up one thing that Bob Hochberger, you know, one of our great chairs here at Harvard mentioned, he's like, most of them, when patients come in, they recognize that they love that medical care they're providing, but they remember those hellos, those handshakes, those goodbyes. So I always tell the residents, hey, whenever you see the patient, you introduce yourself, call them by Mr. Mrs., whatever, shake their hands, shake the family member's hands, come back, give them an update. And when they're, everything's done, wrapped up, right? Tell them, hey, thanks for allowing me to take care of your, care of your mother, brother, and ending it off that way. And I think one other thing that I really, I think it was a Cheryl Heron, I believe. I think that's her EM doc out there in Emory. Yeah. I know she gave a grand rounds at court a couple of years ago, a, a, a talk about her. And one thing she does is, you know, a lot of times we get these patients that come in, multiple ED frequent users and all that. It's always just great to sit down, you know, like you mentioned, Chris, and just ask them, hey, you know, you've had this for so many years. It's back thing, kind of, like, why are you here today? What brings you in today? You know, what do you really want? What can I do to really help you out? And try to break that cycle of them having to come into the ED, right? That definitely dehumanizes them more so than anything else, you know? Instead of you know, trying to get them out of the ED or have social work, see them get them out. I think it definitely helps break that cycle. One of the tips and tricks I use, like you were saying, there's sometimes that it's not intentional, that we just kind of like are kind of stuck in our groove and like you're trying to get your things done and you forget that we need to go back and talk, especially in traumas where it's like chaotic and you're like, I need to do my primary survey, especially early in the year, right? One of my favorite things to do as an attending is to just stop at the end of the head of the bed and just be like, sir, my name is blah, blah, blah. Very quietly not to interrupt the flow, but introduce myself and explain what's going on. Because inherently trauma is a scary, right? We're cutting off clothes. It's cold in there. There's like 15,000 people. You're yelling things. You're getting POC labs and all of that. And this is a really scary place. And I think just taking the extra seconds to explain what's going on and letting them know you're going to come back on the back end, like all we've been talking about, I think is key. And then just going to address something. I understand that we have a lot of patients here with limited English proficiency and um, English may not be their first language. And I don't think that dehumanizes the interaction. I think there's still a way you can do it that people feel like you're empathetic and you're listening, even using an interpreter. And I think learning a couple key phrases in somebody else's language goes a really long way. I think it shows your, it's a testament to your dedication. That you're like, I actually do want to provide care. I want to actually bridge that gap with you. So you don't end up dehumanizing people just because it's a language barrier. But yeah, there's definitely a way to do it. So you're not dehumanizing people just because you don't speak this language. I, I, I want- Language barrier thing is such, I mean, that it, it, it does at times feel like we're dehumanizing. I will give you an example the other day, but I, I agree with you that but we can break down that barrier a lot. But I have a very large Hakuchin population in the department that I serve. And sometimes we can't even get Hakuchin interpreters on our virtual translation service. And, and we try Chinese, but sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. I was printing out discharge instructions for a Hakuchin patient the other day who was having a likely miscarriage. I didn't have in my EMR, a great EMR, by the way, discharge instructions in Chinese or in Hakuchen. And so I have to apologize to the patient. I did. I straight up apologized. I said, I am very sorry that your print to discharge instructions are in English because I don't have anything close to the language you speak. The best I can offer you is for you to use your phone on Google Translate if you have additional questions once you leave here that I haven't addressed. And it gets into a little bit of the blameless apology, right? Which then stops the dehumanization. I felt horrible about the situation, 
Yeah. I thought it was absolutely absurd that that happened, but all I can do in that situation is, is let the patient know that I feel bad about this and I had a, a mediocre solution to it. But mm -hmm. I think just by showing my empathy and apologizing for the situation that I have no control over at least allows the patient to know that, that I do care because absolutely I did in that moment. I also think maybe something that we don't think a lot about is that when you when you um, are talking to people who speak a different language, half of our population here in Orlando speaks Spanish. So one out of two encounters I'm using a translator is I find it's, and this sounds weird, but I literally just comment about like their shoes or their t-shirt and just say, Hey, I really like your earrings. Just, and that can happen through a translator. It's a very big basic thing. And I found it goes oddly, it goes a long way because it shows that I'm not just there to take care of their abdominal pain. I'm actually paying attention to them. I've, I found that's one little quick thing you can say, Hey, I like your shoes. Like, or I really like that shirt or you're a fan of the Avengers. And so we can have that conversation kind of lightheartedly at the end of it all. So, so we can wrap up kind of on time. We're going to be a little late, Chris and Drew, if somebody's listening to this and how am I going to be better at not dehumanizing my patients, what would your take homes be? Oh, Chris is thinking too. Right, that's fine. I can always talk, even though I have no idea what I'm actually saying. Listen, I think at, at the end of the day, you got to check yourself a little bit and just think about if this was my family, my friend in the situation that the patient was in, you can't say myself because we have a very different medical understanding and, and fluency, would they feel dehumanized, right? And if the answer is yes, maybe the situation, like I was saying at the beginning, it has to be that way. But just meet them halfway and explain why the situation is what it is. Talk them through what's going on and do it in a way that just you feel good about, right? And the hardest thing, and and you know, I'm what I think a PGY eleven going on twelve at this point or something like that, is you go through these ebbs and waves of really where are you where are you at in your career right are you angry are you frustrated do you not understand why somebody comes in at 3 a.m something like that and you just check yourself right everyone's there for a a good reason and that's the default that you have to start at and if you start anywhere other than that you're going to dehumanize from the start mine would be be deliberate be deliberate before we intubate a patient, we don't go to the head of the bed and ask, hey, does anybody have my stuff? Like you have to ask specifically what you're looking for. Do you have an Ambu bag? Do you have your bougie? All that. Do that when you see your patients. When you walk into each patient, practice makes permanent, practice makes permanent, practice makes permanent. I make sure that when I walk in, I acknowledge the patient. Can I take a seat? Hey, can you introduce me to someone in your room? And from there, you establish in those first 10 seconds, the dignity that you have for anyone that you would meet any other place. And they're there for a very vulnerable position. I don't care why someone's in the emergency room. I guarantee you that was not part of their plan and half of them don't want to be there. <laughs> so when you walk into the patient's room, think about that. I'm going to talk to a stranger. They don't know me from Adam and I'm about to dive into their personal life in 15 seconds. Three, two, one. Hi, my name's Chris. Do you smoke? How many is Chris? Does your mama have diabetes? How many is Chris? Bam, 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 bam. And so after that, somebody would think, you know what? Chris, what's your last name? Oh, I didn't ask to sit down. Oh, I didn't introduce myself. I just walked in and said, hey, you got chest pain? Introduce yourself. It's those things. Have a plan. Be deliberate. And it will definitely have a huge effect and impact on your patients and your shift. Yeah, I love that, Chris, you bring up the being deliberate part. I feel like this is all something that you can learn. Like everything we've talked about today is just take time to learn how to do this. Be courteous with your patients, be kind. And to 
poke a little joke at Chris's bam, bam, bam. I heard the best take about coming to the emergency department from one of my friends. And he said, I felt like going to the ED is like the worst first date you've ever been on. And I just like, I lost it because it's true. Because I go in and I'm like, how many sexual partners have you had? You just ask all these awkward questions that are like fourth, fifth, sixth date questions. And I'm asking them up front right now. You're not going to get my name. You're not going to get my number. And we're just going to have these nice conversations. So <laughs> Drew and Chris, we appreciate you both hopping on. And really, UCLA, Harvard, we appreciate you bringing us uh, to conference today. And as always, if you do want to learn more about the show, you can head over to our website, emoverazy.com and follow us on social media, whichever one you want to follow us on.